book of James, chapter 5. This is our 18th time together studying this great letter. And as far as I can tell, and if the Lord wills, we will be in James today and the next three Sundays in a row to finish our study. But since it's been two weeks since we were in the early part of James 5, I want to start by reviewing a little bit so you can look back at James 5, because what we're going to look at today builds right on the text that we were in the last time we were in this letter. And, and by the way, to show you that, like how do I know that, that this text is built right on the preceding text, uh, you could look at James 5 verse 7 and just look at the first couple of words. When James says in James 5 verse 7, be patient, therefore, brothers. You notice the word therefore, wherever you are in the Bible, but in the New Testament especially, you should always pay attention to that word. Therefore, because that word signals to us that what James is about to say is built on what he just said. So what did he just say in James 5? Can you remember? It was a very interesting text, a very unusual text in the Bible. Look back to verse 1. Remember this? Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you you told anybody to do that in the last two weeks, to weep and howl about anything? Like, what was going on there, right? The first six verses of James 5 were all targeted directly at the rich, unbelieving people who were oppressing the poor Christians that were reading this letter, the people that James loved so much. And the whole text those six verses, is graphic, sharp, but perhaps nothing is more serious in it than verse 4. James 5, verse 4. Do you remember this verse? Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts the Lord of the armies. I mean, really, the whole passage is about how God sees every injustice, especially those done to his own children. From from Israel back in Egypt, as they were groaning under the oppression of the Egyptians, to those mowing the fields in James' day who weren't getting paid, who were being abused, taken into courts, even killed some of them, to our poor brothers and sisters suffering around the world today, places like Iran, North Korea, Turkmenistan. God hears every cry of his beloved children. Their cries of desperation and pleas for help reach his ears. And what James is trying to encourage his readers with is that when the Lord of heaven's armies starts to move, nothing will be able to hold him back. No amount of money, power, or influence will ever provide safety when God comes to judge. This is the big idea of the text from the last time. But whereas those six verses are all targeted and addressed specifically to the rich, it's not until you get to verse 7, our text today, that James specifically turns 
to the people who are actually going to read the letter, to his poor, suffering brothers and sisters. So look at James 5, verse 7. It says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Now that right there, that, that single line, is the primary point of the whole text that we're going to look at today. Be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. That is not a hard command to understand, but that is a hard command to obey. That's a hard command to hear. If you are a suffering, hurting Christian, that's a hard command for Christians who are being oppressed, who've been dragged into court, who've been abused, who've been slandered, who've lost land and homes, who have friends who've lost their lives. Be patient, brothers and sisters, until when? Until the coming of the Lord. Now, before we go any further, I, I, wanna, I want us to think about this command and how it strikes us or how it might make us feel. Okay, here, here's what I mean. Doesn't that seem at least a little bit, potentially, insensitive? I mean, think of what they're going through. And then to just say, just be patient. How long? Until the coming of the Lord. It might sound to us like James isn't really dealing or reckoning with the seriousness of their situation and their suffering. Like he's not really getting in their shoes here, right? When he, when he says this, dealing with the reality of what's going on, he just tells them to wait and to be patient and just keep waiting until the coming of the Lord. Now, maybe you don't feel that tension at all, uh, but, but I can kind of feel this. I, and I, I've had chances, for example, to, to listen uh, to teach and to listen to dear brothers from Central Asia who are from some of the most difficult places in the world today for Christians to live. And I've had chances to hear these men recount the suffering and the oppression that they experience and that their families experience regularly. And what would you think about me saying to them, just be patient, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. You may think that'd be a great thing to say, and I agree it is a good thing to say, but at the same time, and I don't know if you sense this or not, but I can imagine that for many Christians, they might think something like, yeah, that's true, and that's nice to say that, but that's like not the real world that they're going through. That's not real life. That's not going to change anything about their suffering tomorrow if you say that to them. They need to hear something more connected to their present situation that they're going through. Now, now I'm not going to push back on the desire to help right now, wherever we can. That's a good desire. Wherever we can come alongside brothers and sisters and help them now in tangible ways, by all means, we should do that. And I've often wished, even as I think and I've been thinking this week about these brothers that I remember from Central Asia, I have wished that I could do more for them, tangibly, as they're ministering the gospel in the, some of the hardest places in the world. But what I do want to push back on today is that idea that pointing someone 
to the coming of the Lord isn't relevant or helpful or that, it, that doing that might be insensitive because it's disconnected from their present suffering. Why might we think that or feel that? That maybe, you know, this, just telling them to wait until the coming of the Lord doesn't really engage with them where they are. Why might we think that? There might be a few reasons, but, but I want to press in on one. I think for some of us, and myself included at times, it's possible that the coming of the Lord has become almost theoretical. Kind of like ethereal, sort of like a hazy concept. Something kind of distant. Maybe like an abstract truth that we're, we're happy to confess Jesus is coming. But something that's not real, concrete, solid, grounded in reality. And I'm not saying this is the case for everyone. I hope it's not. But I think that if we're honest, many of us don't think about the coming of the Lord nearly as much as we should. Maybe hardly at all. And even when we do, we perhaps don't think of the Lord's return as something real, concrete, something that's actually going to happen in the real world, in our world, like a future event that is going to change everything forever. I mean, just think about this, for example. Are, are you as confident that Jesus is coming again as you are that he already came? Do you believe that Jesus will return to make every wrong right? Do you believe that as much as you believe that he already came and died and rose to make us right with God? Like how sure are you? How real is our hope? Would you bank everything you've got on it? That Jesus is coming back and he's going to make it all right. Even if you died for him. He'll make everything right. I wonder what James would say to this. Like how confident do you think James was? That Jesus, his brother, right, his Lord, whom he had seen in the flesh, risen from the dead. How confident do you think he was that Jesus was going to come back and keep his promise and make everything right? Like that hope of that future event, the coming of the Lord, was as real to James as the event he saw 10 to 15 years before this. When, when his brother's hands were nailed to a cross and he was buried in the tomb and he rose in the flesh from the dead. The future event was just as real and present and trustworthy, something you could bank on just as much as what had happened 10 to 15 years before, just outside Jerusalem. So my, my point in having this discussion is that James is not offering like a cliché or just like a, a platitude to suffering, oppressed Christians. You know, just, just wait. 
Just wait. Just be patient. He says it because of his absolute confidence that Jesus is coming. His coming is at hand. He's at the door. And when he gets here, all the suffering is going to be over. Everything's going to be made right. James does not lack understanding about suffering. He understands it. In fact, he talks about suffering about as much as any book in the Bible. But because of the hope he has, he knows that all suffering is temporary. All injustice is temporary. None of it will ever be ignored. One day the Lord will come and will make everything right. And when he does, what Jesus makes right will never be made wrong again. So he says, be patient, brothers and sisters, and wait for the coming of the Lord. Now that is the main thrust of the whole passage. But we might ask ourselves, like, well, what does it look like to wait for the coming of the Lord? James gives us a picture or somebody to look to. Look at verse 7 again. See who he points to? He says, See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. <clears throat> now, obviously these readers would have been really familiar with agriculture. Did any of you grow up on a farm? Like, I actually don't know the answer to this, so did you? Anybody grow up on a farm? All right, okay, all right, a couple people, all right? Okay, think about the farmers, James says. Now, the, now these people would have known this really well because you can tell, even in the preceding verses, that many of them were, were actually, at this present time, working out in the fields. He just said that in the verses before this. So they would have been really familiar with this. Most Jewish people would have been really familiar with this. But, but James says, just, just look at the farmers and think about how they have to wait for the precious fruit to grow. Now, if you've ever tried to grow anything, you can relate to this. It takes time and patience to grow anything. That's one of the reasons why planting something with kids is a really good thing to do, right? Because what's the tendency when you plant something with children. Like you plant it, you water it, you go inside and have lunch, and then you come right back out, and what do you expect to see? You expect to see it's all grown up, right? But that's not the way things work. You have to wait. Now, of course, that doesn't mean you don't do anything, right? If anyone has been a farmer or been around a farmer, we know better than that. It's not like the farmer plants the seed and just sits around inside for a couple of months doing nothing. That won't win you any farmer friends if you describe their life like that, right? But the, but the main point of the illustration that James wants us to think about is, is the waiting. And not so much the working, although the farmers are working all the time. He wants you to think about how they, they have to wait patiently for the precious fruit. I mean, the farmer plants, weeds, tills, tends, all these things. But at the end of the day, the farmer has to wait. He has to learn how to wait. And then James adds something that's very related to life in Palestine in the first century when he talks about the rains. Okay, look, look at it again. Look at verse 8. It says, look at the farmer, how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it 
until it receives the early and the late rain. So do you get it? Like he just said, you be patient until the coming of the Lord. And now he says, now, now look at the farmer and how the farmer has to wait until the early and the late rains. Now, just in general, we, we might not be, we might not realize how dependent farmers in James Day would have been on the rain. You know, we are too, to some degree. I mean, if it's a bad drought, it's bad for everybody. But, but without modern irrigation systems with little to no ability to keep the soil watered, the farmers in Palestine were completely dependent on the rain to fall. Their lives, like they didn't, most of them probably didn't have long amounts of things in store, money for the future if things didn't go well. This was living day by day year by year, trying to make it. And their lives, their livelihood, for them and their families were tied to the rain. And James talks here about the early and the late rains. The early rain in Palestine would be in the fall in our calendar. So like October, November, the rains would fall, soften the soil, so that the farmers could go out and plant. Okay? It was the early rains that told you when it was time to plant. Then the farmer would work hard the next several months, tilling, tending, fertilizing, weeding, and waiting. But the success of each harvest in Palestine depended on the coming of the later rain, the latter rains, the rain that would fall in March to April that would lead to the harvest. Now just think about it. Can you imagine having done all sorts of work for all those months, December, January, February. You've worked as hard as you can. And now it's getting close to March and you know that your whole life is dependent on the rain falling from the sky. The God-fearing Jewish farmer recognizes what? I've got no control over that falling rain. I've worked as hard as I can. I've done all I can. But I cannot make it rain. Only God can do that. And so the farmer has to wait. Eagerly, expectantly, for God to act and to send the rain. Now what's the point? What's the application? What's James trying to say to the readers and to us, saying, brothers and sisters, wait like that for the coming of the Lord. You also be patient, he says in verse 8. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. The CSB translation says, be patient, strengthen your hearts, because the Lord's coming is near. Jesus is on the way. Don't grow faint-hearted. Instead, strengthen your hearts. Establish your hearts. I mean, think of the farmer who has to wait for the rain. Don't you think there'd be times, years, when his heart might grow faint? When worries might start to creep in? When he might start to wonder if the rain's really going to fall this year? And James says, establish your hearts. Strengthen your hearts that are prone to to doubt like that, to wander. 
But how do you do that? How do you strengthen your heart that's prone to forget or to doubt? What do you do to establish your heart? I mean, James' audience was living less than 20 years after Jesus walked on the earth. And it probably already seemed like a really long time since Jesus had promised that he'd come back. There had already been a lot of sin and brokenness and suffering in those years. More than enough hardships, they probably thought, since Jesus told us he was coming back. And now here we are, approaching 2,000 years since Jesus walked on this earth and made his promise that he was coming back. And there's been more than enough sin and brokenness and suffering. Have our hearts grown faint? Has our hope waned? Have doubts started to creep into your own heart? Like how do you establish your heart and strengthen your heart to keep waiting for the coming of the Lord? James doesn't develop it, but I think at least one way to do this that we can all just apply right away is to keep reminding yourself of the promise of Jesus, that he's coming back. Keep his promises close. Hide them in your heart. And then keep calling yourself back to believe them. Like, think about them and call yourself to keep trusting them. What kind of promises do you know of about the coming of the Lord? Do you have any hidden in your heart? Like what, what about just one today? From, from John 14, when Jesus spoke to his disciples whose hearts were really troubled but because he just told them, I'm going away, and where I'm going, you can't come. Not now. Do you know what he told them? He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms, and I'm going to prepare a place for you. And what I have told you, that I'm going to prepare a place for you if I wasn't going to come again and take you to be with me where I am. We can strengthen our hearts to keep on hoping by reminding ourselves regularly, if not daily, of the promise of Jesus to come and by calling ourselves back and calling each other back to keep believing his promises. I mean, which other promise has Jesus failed to keep? How many promises has Jesus failed to keep? He's not going to forget or fail on this one. The coming of the Lord is near. As Paul says, I love how he talks about this, he says, how, how close is the coming of the Lord? I always think of Paul's perspective. He says, it's nearer now than when you first believed. You can always say that, right? Jesus hasn't forgotten, so hold on to your hope. Jesus is coming. That's the big point of verses 7 and 8. And then we're going to finish with just one more verse today about what not to do while you wait. Okay, so verses 7 and 8, basically hold on to your hope. Jesus is coming. Verse 9, and make sure you don't do this in the meantime. Verse 9, don't grumble against each other, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. 
As I've mentioned often, James talks about speech in every chapter. Here again, he's concerned about how we talk to each other, specifically that we don't grumble, complain, murmur against each other. And if you think about it, that may seem surprising. Like, why is he so concerned about how we talk to each other? I mean, after all, here's a group of Christians who are going through really, really hard times. Don't you think that going through hard times would draw them all close together? Don't you think that would happen? Don't you think that going through hard times together would naturally lead them together? I mean, I suppose that could happen, and it's certainly nice if it does happen. But in this letter, James seems a lot more concerned that what will actually happen is that hurting brothers and sisters will start to hurt each other, complain about each other, grumble against each other, will turn on each other instead of turning to each other. He seems more concerned that that might happen then there's just naturally being drawn together. And this reminds me of something from the first chapter, which we were in a long time ago. Remember, in our, in our hardest days, we might think we'd be more prone to cling to God, too. But James warns us in the first chapter that in, with tests, often there's a temptation to turn not to God, but on God. And he says, don't ever do that in the first chapter. And now here we are in the last chapter. And we might think, you know, my tendency in suffering would be to lean in on my brothers and sisters, to turn toward them. And James is saying, there's often going to be a temptation to turn on your brothers and sisters, to pour out your frustrations and your angers on the people that you care about the most, who care the most about you. And he says, don't do that. Don't grumble against each other. I want to encourage us about these same things. If you're going through a hard season in your life, or whenever we start to go through a really hard season of life, we better be careful. It's really, really easy, unfortunately, to take out that anger and frustration that we're feeling on the very people that love us the most, and that actually we love the most on each other. Don't turn on each other. Don't start grumbling against each other. This is Satan's scheme to isolate hurting Christians so that he can destroy them, resist him, and instead cling to each other in those days. Because I think we'd all say, at least if we're not really in suffering right now, if we can think back to previous experiences, I think we'd probably all say, you know, we need each other more in our hardest days not less. We need to turn in toward each other and lean on each other more in the hardest of days, not less. And then notice how he finishes in verse 9. Just look at the motivation, because this whole passage is about the future. Don't grumble against each other, so you won't be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Just like he did earlier, points to the reality. We're all going to give an account to the Lord for what we say. We're all going to be held accountable by Jesus for how we treat and talk about each other. Behold, the judge is standing at the door.
As I step back and I think about this, these three verses, it's amazing to me how in the very same passage, the coming of Jesus can have such different effects. I mean, if you just think of what we just read, on the one hand, what is the greatest comfort to you in suffering? At least one of the greatest comforts ought to be Jesus is coming soon. I just have to keep trusting and waiting. The coming of the Lord is one of the greatest comforts for the people of God. But on the other hand, what is one of the greatest motivations for you to not sin, especially against your brothers and sisters? It's the coming of the Lord. It's incredibly challenging to think that when he comes, I'm going to give an account for how I treat you and how I talk to you and about you. So hold on to your hope. Jesus is coming. One day trials will give way to glory. And hold on to each other in the meantime. Jesus is coming. Don't turn on each other. Don't grumble against each other. We're all in the same race. We're all trying to follow Jesus together. It says that on our bulletin. <laughs> it's half of our mission statement, right? And we, and we need each other if we're ever going to make it to the finish line. So we're in the last days. We've been in the last days for a long time. I think there were more last days than we thought. But we're in the last days. And, and so we hold on to Jesus, our hope. We hold on to each other. And then lastly, I just want to leave you with that, with the, with the farmer. Don't forget the farmer. It's been good for me to think about this. So remember how, even though they work so hard, in the end, they just have to wait and keep waiting for the rain to fall. When you think of that God-fearing farmer longing for God to open the heavens and to send the rain. And brothers and sisters, one day, God's not going to send just the rain. One day, God will send the sun. And I wonder how much you've thought about that lately. Last two weeks, since I've seen many of you, have you thought about it? That one day, God will send his son. That'll be the best day. That'll be the beginning of all the best days. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this challenge and encouragement to us to keep waiting, to keep looking. I pray that if nothing else, Today, I pray that the return of Jesus will be more real to us after we leave here, that we will have a greater hope and confidence that will settle us in our suffering, in our relationships with each other. I pray that you would encourage us to be a people of one hope, the one hope to which we've all been called and that as we go out from here into a city where so many people have no hope, I pray that it would be one of the most attractive things about us, that it may bring many others to Jesus so that they can share 
this hope with us. In your name we pray. Amen.